Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 20, A Most Painful Ordeal, 1892. When Tesla embarked for his speaking tour in London and Paris in early 1892, he could scarcely have imagined both the triumph and the tragedy that awaited him in Europe. I fled from London and later from Paris, Tesla wrote in his autobiography, to escape favors showered upon me, and journeyed to my home where I passed through a most painful ordeal and illness. Nor could he have imagined that his time away would inspire the main thrust of the rest of his professional life, the search to perfect the wireless transmission of energy. But before we get to all that, I want to take a second to say thank you to all the people who took a minute to like and or leave a rating for the show since the last episode. It was a banner a couple of weeks for new joiners. So, from Facebook, we have Peter Marku, Roberto Rossi, Aaron W. Muse, Rachel Roth, who is actually an old friend from high school. Hi, Rach. Robert Jeffrey, Vishnu Prabhakaran, Roland Gregg, Rayomeds Medins, Powell Roswadowski, Ahmed Imlul, Milan Barlov, Mark Rodolfo, Josh G. Tikrani, Cody Mayer, Dragana Zivansevich, Rupak Rimal, Andrew Murray, Nadisha D. Shalom, Sasa Puiu, and Gobola Oloko. Thanks as well to Roberto Rossi and Lucas Preston, who used Facebook's recommend feature to let their friends know that they like the show. Lucas says in part, I binged all 18 episodes over the past few weeks at work. Very enjoyable and remarkably easy to follow while focused on other activities. Fantastic pace, detail, and direction. Your dry humor is well received, interjected at just the right points in each episode. Looking forward to listening to the rest of the story. Whew. Glad somebody finds my attempts at humor funny. I was recently informed by my four-year-old daughter that she only laughed at my jokes so that I didn't feel bad that no one was laughing. I was getting a bit worried that I'm not as funny as I think I am. Remember, if you'd like to leave a rating and review and get a shout-out here, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave one there, as it helps the discoverability of the show and means that people will be able to find it more easily when searching about Tesla. Likewise, you can also always join Tesla, the Life and Times podcast Facebook page, and leave a rating and review, or a recommendation, there. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so via that Facebook group, on Twitter at OurManCotto, or through email at tesla at kottowich.com. So, having skipped the historical snapshot last time, let's dive right in to 1892. Starting fittingly on January the 1st, when Ellis Island in New York Harbor begins welcoming immigrants to the United States. On January 15th, James Naismith's Rules for Basketball are published for the first time in the Springfield YMCA International Training School's newspaper. Two months later, the first public basketball game is played in front of 200 people between students and faculty at the Springfield YMCA. The final score is 5-1 to one in favor of the students. Clearly, the era of the triple-double was a ways off yet. In February, Rudolf Diesel applies for a patent on his compression ignition engine, 
henceforth known as the diesel engine. March 18, 1892 isn't the official birth date of the nation of Canada, but I feel like maybe it ought to be. That was the day that Sir Frederick Stanley, 16th Earl of Derby, and the 6th Governor General of Canada announced his intention to donate a trophy, a cup specifically, to act as a challenge cup for Canada's best amateur hockey club. Originally known as the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup, it is, of course, better known as the Stanley Cup in his honour. His lordship was inspired to donate the cup after his sons became avid hockey players during the family's time in Canada, and as Lord and Lady Stanley themselves became hockey fans. I've actually had a few brushes with the Stanley Cup over the years. In a six degrees of separation kind of thing, I went to high school with someone who has actually won the Stanley Cup, Dan Cleary, who won the cup with the Detroit Red Wings and became the first ever Newfoundlander to win the trophy. We went to high school together for two years before I moved away, but I can now say that an actual Stanley Cup winner once offered me 20 bucks to write an essay for him, which is like the most stereotypical jock-nerd interaction possible. I didn't do it, by the way. I don't work for less than 50. In a more personal brush with the cup, if you visit the Hockey Hall of Fame here in Toronto, you can see on display one of the two Stanley Cups in existence. The Hall of Fame is in an old bank building, and the room that the cup lives in must have been some fancy boardroom at one time, as it's very ornate and has these stained glass windows. The cup sits on what could safely be described as an altar up on a dais. It all has a vaguely church-like feel, and I confess for a moment I felt like I was in the presence of a holy relic and actually had to fight the urge to genuflect. But the most up-close-and-personal I ever got to the Stanley Cup was about five years ago, and it was the oddest encounter, too. A friend of mine was having a book launch at Back of Phoenix, Toronto's sci-fi specialty bookstore, when, in the middle of his reading, all of a sudden, someone rushed in from the street and shouted, The Stanley Cup is outside! This being Canada, naturally the store emptied out. That included all of the staff as well as my friend who was in the middle of his reading. There, on the curb outside Baca, sat the Stanley Cup. It had pulled up in a yellow checkered taxi cab. They were doing some sort of promo video around the city and for some reason thought, hey, you know who loves hockey? Science fiction fans. I had my son with me, who was all of a year old at the time, so naturally I had to get a picture with him and the cup. At first I thought I'd see if they'd let me sit him in it, but then I remembered what kids do in their diapers and thought better of defacing a national treasure. Not to mention that it would likely curse the Toronto Maple Leafs to never, ever win the cup ever again, although they've managed to not win it pretty consistently now on their own for the last 52 years and counting. This, this is our year, though. I'm sure of it. <clears throat> so, instead, we crouched down next to the cup for a photo, but my son was fascinated by the shiny thing and so leaned over for a closer look and drooled right in the bowl of Lord Stanley's cup. Later that same night, the Maple Leafs clinched a playoff spot for the first time in nine years. Coincidence? I think not. And just in case you don't believe me, I'll post a picture in this week's show notes at www.teslapodcast.com. It was taken just seconds after he had drooled in the cup.
On March 31st, the world's first fingerprinting bureau was formally opened by the Buenos Aires chief of police. It had been operating unofficially since the previous year. April 15th sees the General Electric Company established through the merger of the Thompson-Houston Company and the Edison General Electric Company. This is a bit of a spoiler, really, and we'll be discussing this merger in more detail in an upcoming episode. On May 28th, in San Francisco, John Muir organizes the Sierra Club. On June 7th, Homer Plessy, who is black, is arrested for sitting on the whites-only train car in Louisiana, leading to the landmark Plessy v. Ferguson court case before the U.S. Supreme Court. Issued as a 7-to-1 decision in 1896, the ruling upheld the constitutionality of racial segregation laws for public facilities as long as the segregated facilities were equal in quality, a doctrine that came to be known as separate but equal. In practice, the facilities were always separate, but certainly not always equal. This ruling legitimized racial segregation laws passed in the American South after the end of Reconstruction. It is widely regarded as one of the worst decisions the U.S. Supreme Court ever made, but remarkably, has never actually been explicitly overruled. A series of subsequent decisions, beginning with Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, which held that Plessy's separate but equal doctrine was unconstitutional in the context of schools and educational facilities, weakened it to the point that it is usually considered to have been de facto overruled. On July 4th, Samoa changed its time zone to be three hours behind California, such that it crossed the international dateline, and thus July 4th occurred twice there. In August, the first electric light bulb in Bulgaria is used at the Plovdiv Fair. In September, Almathea, the third moon of Jupiter, is discovered by Edward Emerson Barnard. Also in September, women are first admitted to Yale University's graduate school. On December 18th, the Nutcracker Ballet, with music by Peter Tchaikovsky, premiered at the Imperial Marinsky Theater in St. Petersburg, Russia. Every year since I was a kid, I try to watch it on TV around Christmas time, and every time I fall asleep. I may not be a ballet guy. Also in 1892, Andrew Carnegie consolidated all his separate businesses into the Carnegie Steel Company, allowing him to gain a monopoly in the steel industry. Viruses were discovered by Russian-Ukrainian biologist Dmitry Ivanovsky. And, at some point in 1892, a tortoise called Timothy was brought to the estate of Powderham Castle in England, where she, yes, she, lived until her death in 2004. Timothy was a 5-kilogram, or 11-pound, Mediterranean spur-thighed tortoise, who was thought to be approximately 160 years old at the time of her death which made her the UK's oldest known resident. In spite of her name, Timothy was female, as apparently people didn't know how to tell sex differences in tortoises in the 19th century. Timothy is believed to have been born on the Mediterranean shores of Turkey, and was found aboard a captured Portuguese privateer in 1854, aged around 10 years. Thus liberated from the Portuguese, the tortoise served as a mascot on a series of Royal Naval vessels until 1892. She was ship's mascot of HMS Queen during the first bombardment of Sevastopol in the Crimean War, making her also the last survivor of that war, and then was moved on to HMS Princess Charlotte and then the HMS Nankin. 
After her naval service, she retired and was taken in by the Earl of Devon at his home, Powderham Castle. From 1935, she lived in the castle's rose garden and was owned by Camilla Gabrielle Courtenay, the daughter of the 16th Earl of Devon. On her underside was etched, Where have I fallen? What have I done? The English translation of the Courtenay family motto. In 1926, Timothy's owners decided that he should mate, and it was then discovered that he was a she. Despite this useful information, all mating attempts were unsuccessful. Timothy is buried at Powderham Castle. Notable births in 1892 include, on January the 3rd, John Ronald Rule Tolkien is born in South Africa. He would become a professor, linguist, philologist, inventor of languages, and author of The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and The Silmarillion. On January 18th, Oliver Hardy, American comedian and actor, and one half of the duo Laurel and Hardy, is born. Peggy Wood, the American actress, is born February the 9th. While she had a very successful career, she is probably best remembered today for her final on-screen appearance as Mother Abbess in The Sound of Music, for which she was nominated for an Academy Award and a Golden Globe. February 13th is the birthday of Robert H. Jackson, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States and Chief Prosecutor at the Nuremberg Trials of Nazi war criminals following World War II. He's also the last justice without a law degree to be appointed to the Supreme Court, having been admitted to the bar through a combination of reading law with a lawyer and attending some law school. On March 3rd, one of my all-time favorite musicians, Mississippi John Hurt, an American country blues singer and guitarist, is born. Well, probably. Some sources give his year of birth as 1893. Either way, check out his record simply called Legend. You'll thank me. On April the 6th, American journalist Lowell Thompson is born. He is best remembered as the newsman who publicized and helped build the legend of T.E. Lawrence, better known, thanks to Lowell Thomas, as Lawrence of Arabia. Also in April, Gladys Louise Smith is born. Better known by her stage name, Mary Pickford, she was a Canadian-born film actress and producer. She was a co-founder of both the Pickford Fairbanks studio, along with Douglas Fairbanks, and later the United Artists Film Studio, with Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, and D.W. Griffith. And she was also one of the original 36 founders of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, who present the yearly Oscar Awards ceremony. Known in her prime as America's Sweetheart, she was one of the most popular actresses of the 1910s and 1920s, earning the nickname Queen of the Movies. She's credited as having invented the ingenue archetype in cinema. She was awarded the second-ever Academy Award for Best Actress for her first sound film role in Coquette, 1929, and also received an honorary Academy Award in 1976. In consideration of her contributions to American cinema, the American Film Institute ranked Pickford as 24th in its 1999 list of greatest female stars of classic Hollywood cinema. On May 2nd, Manfred von Richthofen, better known as the World War I German fighter pilot, the Red Baron, is born. He's considered the ace of aces of that war, being officially credited with 80 air combat victories. Richthofen was shot down and killed near Vaux-sur-Somme on the 21st of April, 1918, but it remains something of an historical controversy as to who exactly killed the Red Baron. It's a matter of Canadian lore and pride, 
seriously, we're taught this in school a hundred years later, that Canadian pilot Captain Arthur Roy Brown was the one who fired the fatal shot. And at the time, the RAF credited Brown with shooting down the Red Baron. More recently, however, it's been argued that Sergeant Cedric Popkin, an anti-aircraft machine gunner with the Australian 24th Machine Gun Company, fired the fatal shot from the ground. In truth, we'll probably never know. But for my money, I think it was actually Snoopy that got him. On the 3rd of May, Sir George Paget Thompson was born. He was an English physicist and Nobel laureate in physics, recognized for his discovery of the wave properties of the electron. In June, famed British actor Basil Rathbone was born in South Africa. He rose to prominence in the United Kingdom as a Shakespearean stage actor and went on to appear in more than 70 films, primarily costume dramas, swashbucklers, and occasionally horror films. His most famous role, however, was of course Sherlock Holmes in 14 Hollywood movies made between 1939 and 1946, as well as in a radio series. He received a Tony Award in 1948 as Best Actor in a Play. He was also nominated for two Academy Awards and was honored with three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Pearl S. Buck was born June 26th, an American writer and novelist who, as the child of missionaries, spent much of her childhood in China. Her novel, The Good Earth, was the best-selling fiction book in the United States in 1931 and 1932, and won the Pulitzer Prize in 1932 as well. In 1938, she was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature for her, quote, rich and truly epic depictions of peasant life in China and for her biographical masterpieces. She was the first American woman to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. Thomas John Mitchell was born in July. An American actor, his most famous roles included Gerald O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, Doc Boone in Stagecoach, for which he won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar, Mayor Jonas Henderson in High Noon, and, perhaps the role he's most remembered for, the bumbling but lovable Uncle Billy in one of my favorite films, It's a Wonderful Life. Mitchell was the first male actor to win an Oscar, an Emmy, and a Tony Award. Your fun fact for today, during the filming of It's a Wonderful Life, during the scene where Uncle Billy gets drunk and George has to point him in the right direction home, as the camera focuses on George, smiling at his uncle staggering away, a crash is heard in the distance, and Uncle Billy yells, I'm all right, I'm all right. This wasn't meant to happen. At that exact moment, a crew member off-camera dropped some equipment leading to the crashing sound. Everyone had the presence of mind to not break character and keep going, with Mitchell even ad-libbing his line to make it seem like the drunk Uncle Billy had just fallen into some garbage cans. You can actually see the actors inside the house kind of do a double take at the unexpected sound and then keep going with their background action. When the scene was finally finished, Frank Capra, the director, yelled cut and demanded to know who had made the noise. The crew member fessed up, probably expecting a tongue lashing at best or getting fired at worst. Instead, Capra unexpectedly gave the fellow a $10 bonus for improving the sound quality of the picture. On July 23rd, Raz Tafari Makonnen, better known as the Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia, was born. Ethiopia's regent from 1916 to 1930, and emperor from 1930 to 1974, he also served two terms as chairperson of the Organization of African Unity. 
Selassie was an Ethiopian Orthodox Christian throughout his life, and claimed descent from King Solomon through his lineage to Emperor Melanik I via his Shiwan Amara royal ancestors as a great-grandson of King Saleh Selassie. Despite this, however, among the Rastafari movement, numbering between 700,000 and 1 million adherents, Haile Selassie is revered as the returned Messiah of the Bible, God incarnate. Beginning in Jamaica in the 1930s, the Rastafari movement perceived Haile Selassie as a messianic figure who will lead a future golden age of eternal peace, righteousness, and prosperity. Selassie died in August 1975 at the age of 83, following a coup d'etat. In September, Arthur Holly Compton was born. An American physicist, he won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1927 for discovering the Compton effect, which demonstrated the particle nature of electromagnetic radiation. It was a sensational discovery at the time. The wave nature of light had been well documented, but the idea that light had both wave and particle properties was not easily accepted. He was also a key figure in the Manhattan Project, where he led the metallurgical laboratory with responsibility for producing nuclear reactors to convert uranium into plutonium, finding ways to separate the plutonium from the uranium, and to design the atomic bomb. Compton also oversaw Enrico Fermi's creation of Chicago Pile 1, the first nuclear reactor, which went critical on December 2, 1942. After the war, Compton became Chancellor of Washington University in St. Louis. During his tenure, the university formally desegregated its undergraduate program, named its first female full professor, and enrolled a record number of students after wartime veterans returned to the United States. Charles Atlas, strongman and sideshow performer, was born October 30th. Born Angelo Siciliano, Atlas was an Italian-American bodybuilder best remembered as the developer of a bodybuilding method and its associated exercise program, which spawned a landmark advertising campaign featuring his name and likeness. If you've ever seen one of those ads in the back of an old comic book that promises all those 97-pound weaklings that they too can build the body of a Greek god, well, you've seen the Charles Atlas ads. And on December 15th, John Paul Getty was born. An English-American industrialist and patriarch of the Getty family, he founded the Getty Oil Company, and in 1957, Fortune magazine named him the richest living American, while the 1966 Guinness Book of Records named him as the world's richest private citizen, worth an estimated $1.2 billion, which is approximately $9 billion in today's money. At his death, he was worth more than $6 billion, approximately $25 billion today. Getty's life has been much in the news over the last few years, even though he's long since dead, because of the 2017 film All the Money in the World, directed by Ridley Scott. This, of course, is the movie which had to have key scenes reshot with Christopher Plummer parachuted into the role of Getty after scandal erupted around Kevin Spacey, who originally had the part and had already filmed his scenes, mere months before the premiere date. The movie did quite well, despite everything, even garnering Plummer an Oscar nod for Best Supporting Actor. Deaths of note in 1892 include... Prince Albert Victor, Duke of Clarence and Avondale, who died in early January. The eldest child of the future King Edward VII and Queen Alexandra, and grandson of the reigning British monarch Queen Victoria, he was second in line of succession to the British throne when he died during an influenza epidemic. 
A disappointment to Queen Victoria, who referred in her diary to Albert Victor's, quote, dissipated life, which later historians tend to agree is a coded reference to Albert Victor being gay. The most bizarre post-mortem theory that has cropped up about Albert Victor is that he was, in actuality, the serial killer known as Jack the Ripper, and that the British royal family had a hand in covering this up, which is why the identity of Jack the Ripper was never confirmed. First proposed in the 1960s, this theory is the central plot device of Alan Moore's famed graphic novel, From Hell, as well as the later movie of the same name based on it. However, study of contemporary documents show that Albert Victor could not have been in London at the time of the murders. For example, on the 30th of September 1888, when Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were murdered in London, Albert Victor was over 500 miles away at Balmoral, the royal retreat in Scotland, in the presence of Queen Victoria, other family members, visiting German royalty, and a large number of staff. According to the official court circular, family journals and letters, and newspaper reports, he could not have been near any of the other murders either. The claim is no more than fiction. John Couch Adams also died in January. He was an English mathematician and astronomer most famous for predicting the existence and position of Neptune using only mathematics. The calculations were made to explain discrepancies with Uranus's orbit and the laws of Kepler and Newton. Louis Vuitton died in February 1892. A French fashion designer and businessman, he was the founder of the Louis Vuitton brand of leather goods, and before that was appointed as a trunk maker to Empress Eugenie, wife of Napoleon III. His life story is really incredible. He left home on foot in the spring of 1835 at age 13, bound for Paris. He traveled for more than two years, taking odd jobs to feed himself along the way and staying wherever he could find shelter, as he walked the 292-mile, or 470-kilometer, trek from his native Anchet to Paris. He arrived in 1837 at the age of 16, apprenticed himself to a successful box maker, and worked his way up to the height of fashion from there. Just remarkable. Walt Whitman, the American poet, essayist, and journalist, died in March. Whitman is amongst the most influential poets in the American canon, often called the father of free verse. His work was controversial in its own time, particularly his poetry collection Leaves of Grass, which was described as obscene for its overt sexuality. Another poet, Alfred Lord Tennyson, died in October. He was Poet Laureate of Great Britain and Ireland during much of Queen Victoria's reign, and remains one of the most popular British poets. Much of his verse was based on classical mythological themes, such as Idols of the King, Ulysses, and Tithonus. A number of phrases from Tennyson's work have become commonplace in English usage, including nature red in tooth and claw, tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, which I thought was Shakespeare, theirs is not to reason why, theirs but to do and die, and to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. He is the ninth most frequently quoted writer in the Oxford Dictionary of Quotation. The actress Helen Mirren recently did a dramatic reading of a passage from Tennyson's Ulysses on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. I'll try and post the YouTube clip in this week's show notes. It's really quite moving. In December, Jay Gould, American financier, railroad developer, and speculator, died. He's been portrayed as one of the most ruthless robber barons of the Gilded Age, which is saying something. He was hated and reviled, 
with few defenders then or now. Also in December, German inventor and industrialist Ernst Werner Siemens died. An accomplished inventor, including in the telegraphy industry where so many early electrical pioneers got their start, Siemens made several contributions to the development of electrical engineering and is therefore known as the founding father of the discipline in Germany. He built the world's first electric elevator in 1880. His company produced the tubes with which Wilhelm Conrad Rotengen invested x-rays. He claimed invention of the dynamo, although others invented it earlier. Siemens is also the father of the trolleybus, which he initially tried and tested with his electromote on the 29th of April, 1882, which we mentioned briefly back in episode 5. Now then, last time we left off after Tesla's triumphant presentation to the Institution of Electrical Engineers in London. After that, it was off to lecture in Paris. But little did Tesla realize the physical and emotional toll this trip to the continent would take on him. Tesla crossed the English Channel the second week of February 1892 and took a room at the Hotel de la Paix. He had a lecture booked before a joint conference of the Société de Physique and the Société Internationale des Electriciennes on February 19th. Before his presentation, however, Tesla took the time to seek out a well-known French physician, Dr. de Arsenaval, a pioneer in the field of diathermy, that is, quote, a medical and surgical technique involving the production of heat in a part of the body by high-frequency electric currents to stimulate the circulation, relieve pain, destroy unhealthy tissue, or cause bleeding vessels to clot. Remember last time when I said there was every reason to believe that, contrary to what internet memes about Tesla might lead you to believe, Tesla did, in fact, mind that people stole his ideas or didn't credit him as the originator of an idea? Yeah, this is a perfect case in point. When Dr. D'Arsenaval declared that he had made the same discovery concerning the physical effects caused by sending extremely high frequency through the body, Tesla later recounted, a heated controversy relative to priority was started. The French, eager to honor their countrymen, made him a member of the Academy, ignoring entirely my earlier publication. Resolved to take steps for vindicating my claim, I met with Dr. D'Arsenaval. His personal charm disarmed me completely and I abandoned my intention, content to rest on the record. It shows that my disclosure antedated his, and also that he used my apparatus in his demonstrations. The final judgment is left to posterity. Leaders in the profession have assured me that I have done more for humanity by this medical treatment than all my other discoveries and inventions. Having settled his beef with Darsenaval, Tesla was free to focus on his presentation. Mirroring the demonstration he'd given a few weeks earlier in London, the French were just as impressed by Tesla's experiments as the English had been. The French electrician, Edouard Hospitaller, observed, quote, The young scientist is almost a prophet. He introduces so much warmth and sincerity into his explanations and experiments that faith wins us, and despite ourselves, we believe that we are the witnesses of the dawn of a nearby revolution in the present process of illumination. The French papers this week are full of Mr. Tesla and his brilliant experiments, reported the journal Electrical Review. No man in our age has achieved such a universal scientific reputation in a single stride as this gifted young electrical engineer. 
During his stay in Paris, Tesla mingled with a number of dignitaries, including the physicist André Blondel, whose work revolved around advanced theories of alternating current, as well as Prince Albert of Belgium, who was interested in improving the electrical power systems in his country and providing his people power more economically. Forty years later, Blondel reached out to Tesla, recalling, quote, with immense interest and admiration, the Paris Conference, and congratulated Tesla on how he had simply and elegantly demonstrated his work in alternating current, and how it had gone well beyond the work of his French colleague Dupre and the Italian inventor Ferraris, who we've discussed before. I mentioned last time that Tesla's patent situation in Europe was far from clear. Tesla had filed patent applications for the AC motor in several countries, including England and Germany, but he had issued no licenses to European manufacturers to exploit his inventions, nor had he enforced his patents by taking legal action against infringers. Taking the opportunity of being in Europe to try and generate some income from his foreign patents, Tesla met with representatives of Schneider & Co., a French company, and the Helios Company, a German concern, and licensed these companies to manufacture his motors in their countries. Tesla found all these activities, giving lectures, meeting important people, negotiating with businessmen, exciting but stressful. And it was at this point that Tesla's mental health and events outside his control conspired against him. It had been Tesla's intention to make a visit home to Gospish to visit his mother, Juca, once his lectures were out of the way. But not long after the Paris lecture, Tesla received a telegram saying that his mother was deathly ill. He rushed to the railroad station, arriving in time to board a train just about to pull out. He telegraphed ahead for special transportation to be waiting for him. He was met in Gospish by his three sisters and his uncle Pitar, who took him to see his mother. When Tesla arrived at his mother's side, he found her suffering, but with strength enough to murmur to her only son, You've arrived, Nidzo, my dear. Our sources disagree on exactly how much time elapsed here. Either Tesla's mother lingered for some time, possibly a few weeks, or she died the very night that Tesla arrived home. Only O'Neill claims the death the same night, however, which I suspect may be his embellishment to heighten the dramatic tension of the moment and its subsequent effect on Tesla. At this point, the stress and fatigue of the previous weeks, coupled with the grief of his mother's illness and imminent death, hit Tesla all at once. In his book Prodigal Genius, O'Neill describes Tesla being overcome with, in a euphemism befitting an earlier time, quote, a mysterious illness that incapacitated him for many weeks. In reality, we would understand this to be a nervous or mental breakdown, which we know Tesla was already prone to suffer from. Indeed, it is claimed that as a result of the stress of this period, a patch of hair on the right side of Tesla's head turned white overnight, returning to its normal jet-black color only over a period of a month or so. I had become completely exhausted by pain and long vigilance, and one night was carried to a building about two blocks from our home, Tesla recounted. As I lay helpless there, I thought that if my mother died while I was away from her bedside, she would surely give me a sign. For my mother was a woman of genius, and particularly excelling in the powers of intuition. During the whole night, every fiber in my brain was strained in expectancy, but nothing happened until early in the morning, when I fell into a sleep, or perhaps a swoon, and saw a cloud carrying angelic figures of marvelous beauty, one of whom gazed upon me lovingly and gradually assumed the features of my mother. The appearance slowly floated across the room and vanished. 
and I was awakened by an indescribably sweet song of many voices. In that instant a certitude, which no words can express, came upon me that my mother had just died. As soon as he was able, Tesla wrote to Sir William Crookes, president of the Institution of Electrical Engineers, and the man who had invited Tesla to lecture in London in the first place. You'll recall from last time that while Tesla was in England, Crookes introduced his interest in the occult and psychic phenomenon, arguing as a scientist that there was some evidence for the claims made by mediums of being able to contact the dead. Tesla to that point hadn't ever really put stock in such ideas, but the fact that a man of science whom he deeply respected took spiritualism so seriously impressed Tesla and seems to have spurred at least some level of curiosity in the man. Because Tesla remained troubled by his vision of his mother rising to heaven, he couldn't square his materialist man-as-meat-machine view of the world with angelic choirs and pearly gates and an afterlife. He confessed as much to Crooks, though it was unclear what he sought in doing so. Was he hoping the man would dissuade him? Was he hoping Crooks would confirm that what he'd seen was a genuine spiritual experience? Crooks' reply, if there was one, appears lost to history. The vision continued to trouble Tesla for some time. In fact, Tesla almost blames Crooks for putting such notions in his head, saying that thanks to his discussion with Crooks, he, Tesla, quote, was under the full sway of these thoughts. I might not have paid attention to other men, but was susceptible to his arguments. When I recovered, Tesla explained in his autobiography, I sought for a long time the external cause of this strange manifestation, and, to my great relief, I succeeded after many months of fruitless effort. I had seen the painting of a celebrated artist, representing allegorically one of the seasons in the form of a cloud, with a group of angels which seemed to actually float in the air, and this had struck me forcefully. It was exactly the same that appeared in my dream, with the exception of my mother's likeness. The music came from the choir in the church nearby at the early mass of Easter morning, explaining everything satisfactorily in conformity with scientific facts. This occurred long ago, and I have never had the faintest reason since to change my views on psychic and spiritual phenomenon, for which there is absolutely no foundation. It's not known whether Tesla's mother died on Easter morning, but what is clear is that this analysis Tesla put together relieved the mental tension the experience had caused him, as it fully supported his hard materialist viewpoint. Juka was buried beside her husband in the Jaskovac Cemetery in Dosello. As a sign of the deep involvement of the Tesla and Mandic families in the Serbian Orthodox Church, six priests officiated at the funeral. Tesla arranged for white obelisk headstones over the graves of his parents. After the death of his mother, Tesla stayed in Gospish for six weeks to recuperate. It allowed him time to reconnect with his family and provided him with the only extended break he would ever take. But the grief remained. I don't have to tell you that I am very sad and holding myself with restraint, he wrote Uncle Pajo in April 1892. I was afraid of this event a while ago, but the blow was heavy. When Tesla had regained his strength, he journeyed across Croatia to Platsky to visit his sister Marika, to Varazdin to see Uncle Pajo, and to Zagreb, where he lectured at the university. From Zagreb, Tesla traveled to Budapest to meet with old friends and colleagues from the electrical manufacturing firm Gans & Company from all the way back in Episode 5. 
While he was there, Tesla negotiated a license so that Gans could manufacture his motors. He wrote Westinghouse, quote, The patents are in the hands of three of the most powerful companies who will cooperate, and they are earnest in their intention to push the manufacture. The introduction of the motor in Europe on an extensive scale will, no doubt, have a very favorable influence upon the value of my American patents, which are owned by your company. In May, Tesla went to the Serbian capital, Belgrade, where he was feted as a national hero. King Alexander I conferred on him the title of Grand Officer of the Order of St. Sava, a decoration meant to recognize civilians for meritorious achievements to the church, to arts and sciences, the royal house, and the state. The great Serbian poet Jovan Jovanovic Zmaja composed a poem, Pozdrav Nikoli Tesli, which translates as Greeting Nikola Tesla, which I've been unable to find a translation of in English, sadly, which Zmaja read at a ceremony honoring Tesla. Tesla thanked the audience, expressing both his ambition and his national pride. Quote, If I were to be sufficiently fortunate to bring about at least some of my ideas, it would be for the benefit of all humanity. If these hopes become one day a reality, my greatest joy would spring from the fact that this work would be the work of a Serb. Setting out at last for his return journey to the United States, Tesla made his way through Prussia and stopped in Berlin to see the physicist Hermann von Helmholtz, and from there to Bonn to visit with von Helmholtz's most famous student, Heinrich Hertz. Hertz had gained fame by performing the first significant experiments in wireless, many of which Tesla replicated or expanded upon. In one of these, Tesla had repeated Hertz's original experiments using his oscillating transformer, and while he felt that Hertz had shown that electromagnetic waves propagated in space, Tesla disagreed with Hertz about the form of the waves. In his experiments, Hertz had found that the waves were transverse, meaning that the disturbances are at right angles to the direction of propagation. As an example, think of waves lapping against a shore. Hertz's tests show that the waves could be reflected and interfere with each other, thus revealing that electromagnetic waves were like light. In replicating Hertz's experiments, however, Tesla concluded that the waves were not transverse but longitudinal, moving parallel to the direction of propagation. Think of a train moving backward. As the locomotive reverses, it bumps each car and each car bumps the next so that a pulse propagates through the string of cars. For Tesla, electromagnetic waves were more like sound waves than light waves. If Tesla was correct, which, spoilers, he wasn't, then Hertz had not, in fact, provided the experimental proof for James Clerk Maxwell's theory on the nature of electromagnetic phenomenon and its relationship to light. Needless to say, Tesla's claims bummed Hertz out. He seemed disappointed to such a degree that I regretted my trip and parted from him sorrowfully, said Tesla. Unsurprisingly, Hertz chose not to note the meeting with Tesla in his diary for that day. Tesla described the end of his trip to Europe as, quote, a most painful ordeal. But he nevertheless returned from Europe with a major insight that would affect everything he did experimentally from that point onward. As we discussed last time, Tesla left London with Lord Rayleigh's praise on his mind and what he took from it, that he should focus his efforts on one big idea. The idea came to him, as so many of his ideas did, while he was on a walk. It was in the mountains of his homeland, in fact. During his hike, he got caught in a thunderstorm, finding shelter just in time. As he described in his autobiography, quote, 
Somehow the rain was delayed until all of a sudden there was a lightning flash, and a few moments after, a deluge. This observation set me thinking. It was manifest that the two phenomena were closely related, as cause and effect, and a little reflection led me to the conclusion that the electrical energy involved in the precipitation was inconsiderable, the function of the lightning being much like that of a sensitive trigger. Here was a stupendous possibility of achievement. If we could provide electric effects to the required quality, this whole planet and the conditions of existence on it could be transformed. The consummation of this idea depended on our ability to develop electrical forces of the order of those in nature. It seemed a hopeless undertaking, but I made up my mind to try it, and immediately on my return to the United States in the summer of 1892, work was begun which was to me all the more attractive because a means of the same kind was necessary for the successful transmission of energy without wires. Observing that the flash of the lightning seemed to cause the rain to start, Tesla was fascinated by the notion of a sensitive trigger, that a small force, properly applied, could be used to harness tremendous forces in the earth. Tesla's revelation, his intuition, was that if he could scale up his oscillating transformer, he might very well be able to use it as a trigger needed to harness the very earth itself. In mid-August, Tesla sailed from Hamburg aboard the Augusta Victoria, bound for New York. And while he's en route, we're going to take a step back to catch up with Westinghouse, Edison, and the still-simmering War of the Currents. We'll see how consolidation of electrical rivals left only Westinghouse and the newly formed General Electric standing. We'll hear about the bid to electrify the Chicago World's Fair of 1893, and the first stirrings of the efforts to harness Niagara Falls, the hydroelectric generating station. Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. As always, please spread the word, recommend the show to a friend, or share links to the latest episodes on your social media. It all helps. Please take just a minute to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to the show and leave a rating and review like the ones I mentioned at the top. Past episodes can be found at www.teslapodcast.com. Sign up there for our email list. You can keep up to date about the show on your Facebook page. And you can also always contact me directly at tesla at or on Twitter with the handle at ourmancotto. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowicz.